the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, pure violence without object. This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's discussion, just want to mention we've got a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider tossing us the one inflation-laden dollar a month for amazing content. And if you can't do that, not a problem. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. We'd appreciate you either way. And maybe even give you a shout-out on the next week's episode. Today, Taylor and I are going to be back in the saddle or part two of our two-part series on Deleuze's monograph on Nietzsche, Nietzsche and philosophy. And this episode is going to cover chapter four onward. I think the most interesting thing, there is chapter four on Rizantimon and bad conscience and how, you know, Rizantimon is kind of a, if you will, an outward projection of negativity of reactive forces, blaming others, the world, even circumstances. I mean, this is kind of, if you think about um, Job, right? The book of Job, you know, when when there's the, the little wager, not <laughs> to say a dice throw, but there's a little wager between Lucifer and God about Job's kind of breaking point. And, um, you know, if you think about it, like the way that these events keep happening to Job if you will, to test his faith, let's just say. And each step of the way, if he went by the common people's, his neighbor's morality, let's say, right? If he went by their way of judging, they keep saying, hey, listen, these bad things keep happening to you because of, they don't use a word, but it's basically because of karma. You did something wrong. You fucked up something which is why bad things are happening to you. Right, yeah. God's having his revenge on you, effectively. Right. You did something. We don't know what it is. You may not even know, but you need to beg for forgiveness for this crime against God or whatever. Yeah, you've incurred some type of debt that has to be repaid. Right. Because right. debt uh, also plays into this whole conversation. Yeah, we talked about last time how the, you know, Deleuze nicely points out this movement from in Nietzsche and the genealogy of morality from from debt to guilt and how that's the same word in German. So there is this kind of interesting shift. You owe a debt and you should feel guilty and therefore ask for forgiveness. And Job's like, he doesn't agree with that because what the neighbors are trying to do is get him to have bad conscience. Oh, it was me. It was I fucked up. You could say bad conscience in a certain way is kind of like uh, the third synthesis, right? The synthesis of consumption, 
consummation or the synthesis of, of conjunction, right? The this notion that oh that's that oh so that was me. That's I'm I'm the subject over there, but it, it's kind of in the in the negative sense, right? So now instead of Rizantiman blaming others, there is this like I need to blame myself. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy mm -hmm. to have good things. I did something wrong. And he resists that, right? And you know of course, the climax of the story is there's a breaking point where Job kind of, if you will, wants a justification. It's not quite perhaps resentment, right? It's not quite that resentment of of God, but it has that tone, you know, like, God, why are you fucking testing me? What is it that you want? Why are you doing this to me? And so that is where you know we could say that job reaches almost this breaking point of resentment and, and of course god is like you can't use moral worldviews to understand what happens to you right did you create the stars in the sky you know just create the leviathan you don't know shit. and so in a certain way it's almost like even trying to use knowledge to understand what happens to us in the world is a reactive force. This is why there's that screed throughout chapter four and five, Deleuze keeps going back to, to how the man of knowledge or knowledge itself is a kind of reactivity. It's a kind of reactive way of, of being. He doesn't put it this way, but we might think of it in a Freudian terms of where it's like we are trying to master phenomena in order to bulwark anxiety against the impending outside right the eruption of the outside of the uh, of the unknown and of course like you know this is a theme in in faust and these these other things but done in different ways but there's a sense of like you know you want to have power over the unknown sort of to master this anxiety it's a it again it's it's um and of course you know job has a quasi happy ending it's kind of fucked up but it's still quasi happy ending because everything's kind of reversed or even even reversed with interest right i mean sort of <laughs> his family and all that die right he gets a new family but yeah right so you know there's a i guess i would just say um for deliz's nietzsche and in a certain way we could call it that right because there's always going to be especially with I think I like Nietzsche, there's always gonna be kind of like a problematic or a biased aspect. And mm -hmm. I'll save this for later, but I know that when we talk about nomad thought and we talk about, well, specifically in the nomad thought essay, I think it's even more clear Deleuze's reading of Nietzsche is a little bit biased. But for now, you know, we can just talk about this kind of, I guess, sets up chapter five, which to me is more interesting than chapter four, especially since we talked a little bit about chapter four, but that's just kind of setting up. So nihilism mainly works through resentiment and, and bad conscience, which both are kind of two sides of the ascetic ideal. And to a certain extent, right, this is obviously linked to religion. We can think about ways in which asceticism could be kind of you know we can think about all the different verses in the bible especially in the new testament just about 
not investing desire in this world. It's almost a sin, if you will, to have that kind of lack of foresight to prepare for this spiritual world above, which one could say the flip side isn't necessarily true that we necessarily need to be greedy pigs or whatever. But there's a sense of self-abnegation that's inherent to the ascetic ideal, which is why I think Deleuze, I think it's a chapter five where he, he, he looks at the three different nihilisms, right? There's um, what there's reactive nihilism. Does he call it extreme nihilism and then passive nihilism? Is those, is those the three? Okay. Negative nihilism, passive nihilism. And there was one more. What's the other one? Negative, reactive, and passive. Okay, right. So, and we talked about Buddhism and Schopenhauer last time. So the only thing I'll say bringing them back up is, you know, Nietzsche and Deleuze point out that if passive nihilism is kind of like the height of, of nihilism, right? Where it's no longer, we're no longer in the negative stage where we are willing nothingness, right? Kind of like in resent, resentment, we're in, in, like almost in like... Uh, sort of anal sadistic or the aggressive stage of psychoanalysis where we want to like destroy the the outside, the object. And we're no longer merely in the reactive stage where we sort of turn those forces inward, if you will. Now we're in the passive stage where we, we, we are like beyond, we are, we are willing not to will, right? We are yeah. kind of, yeah. So I think this is interesting, and I brought up last in the last episode. What was it? Uh, God, what was the example I was bringing? Up, oh yeah, so the parable of the prodigal son, right? Because about oh because yeah, yeah, relative to investiture because of the fact that the prodigal son, like he uh, he wants his inheritance up front, like immediately. His brother forgoes that, right? Mm -hmm. So. Not the prodigal son, but his brother that remains at home and obedient and doesn't go off and squander his father, his inheritance. That he is the man of resentment. He is the man of bad conscience. Is that right? To a certain degree, he's at least envious. Yeah, which is a form you could say he's, it's it's a form of 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 re resentment, right? Because he seems to resent his brother for being forgiven. Obviously, the parable is about like. Why is it the people that convert towards the end of their life get to see just as much heaven or something, right? Why don't they only get 10%? Whereas, yeah. like, I paid I've off lived... my student loans. Right. So the, the prodigal son, he gets to go out and do the things that perhaps the, the good son, quote unquote, the good son, the, um, the, the obedient, the obedient son, the steadfast. Or just the, you would think that the brother wouldn't necessarily harbor these feelings of resentment if he hadn't given ground on his desire because it seems like he wishes he could have been profligate or you know prodigal yeah yeah he had yeah like that's he, where the maybe that's where the resentment the result yeah the resentment is is kind of well my brother got to have his resonance and then be and nothing nothing bad happened to him how are we still equal why shouldn't i have some sort of some little extra surplus jouissance, right? What, where's my surplus enjoyment? And so, yeah, you could say that's, that's resentful. To bring this together, really, I, you know, I believe in these chapters, he, Nietzsche, or 
Deleuze, I can't, maybe Deleuze quoting Nietzsche talks about the bird of prey, right? The bird of prey doesn't withhold itself from acting, right? It's not evil because it's simply like, right? It does what it does and it doesn't concern itself with these anxieties about the future or the past. It's not restrained by those that goes well, it, and that's and so it, can't, to, it can't even it can't even restrain itself. Right. That's the fiction. Yeah, it's like the, it's like a pure machine of, I don't know, becoming or something like that being I, I, I don't know. I'm being a little bit loose there, but the parallel that I'm trying to draw is between the bird of prey would be analogous to the prodigal son because there's no delay of investiture in the in desire, right? He's affirming desire. I want my inheritance. I want enjoyment and I want it now. I'm not going to forego my enjoyment now for a for a return later like the other brother, right? Like that's the that's the kind of antagonism between them, which I think this also goes to extends to capitalism through debt. I don't know if you can if you can kind of see what I'm gesturing at broadly here in that cuz you could bring in the capitalists and and the proletarian. So the proletarian is like more so invested in the moment, like investing in their enjoyment now or that's like the incentive in capitalism is to forego your immediate gratification and put that off so that you receive a greater return at a later date and it's the man that can hold all hold it cannot come to go back to libidinal economy right right so you holding one semen in this is where i get a little bit confused or like i'm sort of on board with this idea of of debt and how that relates to i suppose anxiety but also i i guess revenge in a sense you could sort of say that the interest on a loan is a type of revenge. I suppose it's shit like avocado toast. It's the same logic in play. Forgo pleasure, forgo desire now mm-hmm. for a greater return in heaven. Don't mm-hmm. act, right? Do not act. Prevent yourself from acting and not acting, restraining oneself is the sort of is the ethical way to live i suppose for for nietzsche according to Deleuze, right say that last part again what what's the ethical thing for for Deleuze? the the ethic seems to be to act right to act the way that the bird of prey acts the bird of prey acts without it doesn't restrain itself it's not encumbered by feelings of guilt about the past and anxiety about the future it's merely affirming its its role or its niche or something within the world, right? It's like a, it is the sort of, you brought up in the first episode, what is the, uh, Batiste, Beastliness? Batiste, yeah. Yeah, the Batiste, right? And I brought this up as well in that episode. Becoming a beast gets rid of the pain of being a man. It's becoming passive and the resentment that the passive person has towards the active creator let's say that's the like kind of parallel I'm trying to draw with the story of the prodigal son between the two brothers, because I think they very kind of displayed the same relationship between the capitalist and the, and the worker as well, or the mindset of like, yeah, I'm not going to forego my immediate gratification or pleasure or 
enjoyment, et cetera, for a delayed return in heaven or down the road. So I don't know. And this is kind of where I get a little bit lost as far as what Deleuze, Nietzsche are trying to really get at. Yeah, I guess I would just say it's hard to link to link directly just to to say that the prodigal son is is a bird of prey. We could think that. And then, you know, the fiction would be that the prodigal son could have chosen not to be prodigal and therefore he is guilty for choosing in a way that his brother doesn't agree with. I think that where it gets a little bit tricky, right, is especially when Nietzsche contrasts, because he has a whole menagerie, not just of like characters, but also of these animals. You know, when he, when Nietzsche contrasts the, if the brother is the bird of prey, if the prodigal son is the bird of prey, then the brother might be the ass. If we're going to stick with the animals in Nietzsche's menagerie, right? He's the ass that has it who cannot say no. He's the ass that is unable, who just takes on these burdens of quote unquote reality, these burdens of um, being the good son, right? These burdens of, of what he perceives as uh, expected of him. Right. And yeah, I, I mean, think- he's the sort of slave. And I mean, maybe this will help kind of give you a little bit better understanding of my perspective is, just to draw from my own thought process or experience, like I have a, a sort of bad conscience or resentment of capitalism, right? And I could take action, but I've been sort of, right? I've undergone the training that, so I suppress my ability to act and only invest in this kind of resentment towards the world and my position in it from my perspective it is because it is chance like it it has nothing to do with my actions like what am i willing i guess i'm sort of willing to not will but i've also been sort of trained to not will or not express my will or the incentives in society are are not to will maybe that's even the better way to think about it is the incentives are to withhold action you shouldn't transgress moral law I think that it's easy, obviously we were talking about capitalism here, but we can think of any order of things, any moral order. Um, Yeah. It's obviously easier to be the ass to a certain extent, at least easier in the sense in which we can accommodate ourselves and and bedeck ourselves with with the values of the day and then be able to reflect on ourselves and, or, or reflect on ourselves and to sort of, put ourselves out in the world as like, look at me, I'm, I agree with, with the current values. Therefore I'm good. That's kind of similar to the ass not being able to say no. And this is why, this is why the ass's yes is hollow. The donkey's yes is, is not true affirmation because when we get to what Deleuze is, is showing Nietzsche to be, expositing with you know transvaluation transmutation of values the creation involved in that requires a certain destruction you don't just create new values at infinitum and they stand alongside each other there is a sense in which um there's a sense in which it's i mean this is what they talk about in terms of joyful destruction 
So also, how is that not a negation? Well, affirmation. Well, he says in the destruction of values. I mean, it is only under the sway of affirmation that the negative is raised to its higher degree at the same time as it defeats itself. There's no longer a power or a quality, but the mode of being of the one who is powerful. Then and only then the negative is aggression. Negation becomes active, joyful destruction. The negative is no longer the quality of the will of the will to power. It's when the will to power has the quality of the negative that we are that's when reactive forces are ascendant right so it's it's the when the quality of the will is affirmative when we are dealing with active forces when we are talking about the eternal return and the negative does not return it's only with affirmation that the negative can be able to perform act in the world in a way in which it is not reactive right this is kind of what he was getting at earlier when um he was talking about reactive forces when they are prevented from being acted that's when they sort of accumulate and are able to if you will corrupt the quality of the will this is why he'll distinguish reactive forces from re hyphen acting so yes, there is destruction involved with, with creation, with the affirmation. There is negation, but negation is not the uh, is not the engine, not the motor, right? Yeah, okay. It's not the motor, right? That's kind of a key thing. Yeah, um, yeah, you're right. I thought this was interesting too that this little quote where he says reaction ceases to be acted in order to be something become something felt. Yes. That's the sant and sentiment, right? The ah, resentiment. Okay, interesting. Right? Okay. So it's it's a re-sentiment, if you think about it <laughs> that way, right? There's a there's a sense in which it becomes again, this is why I kind of use the word corrupt. I'm not even sure if that's the best word for it, but you know, when these reactive forces are not able to be acted and they they then sort of like dwell in the heart, or if you want to think it that way. The conscious like bad i mean maybe that's the bad conscience aspect well that's one form of it you know are we going to internalize that feeling are we going to try to vent and externalize it on on others i've said this a few times in a few episodes but you know in logic of sense when deleuze is saying if there's an ethics of the event it's either this or has nothing to say it's not to be unworthy of what happens to us and so one can imagine that being resentful towards the world, towards life. That's one not being worthy, but we can also be, uh, we can also make ourselves unworthy through bad conscience, right? We can, we can um, sort of. Even though I sort of like have a knowledge of, this really fucks it up, but I'll just say it anyways, because it might be something to play off of. Even though I know it's not necessarily all my fault, my position in life or the world or whatever there I'm, you know, there are forces that I'm at the mercy of, at least from my perspective that prevent me from whatever actualizing or whatever the fucking case may be. I still have a certain level of taking on the bad conscience of I have failed by the criteria of the world, by the criteria of capitalism. I failed. I have not succeeded. I know very well 
mm-hmm. but it's kind of bullshit. I still find myself at times lapsing into this self blame or like feeling like I have lost in my dice through. And I feel bad about that. I, my anger is directed both inward and outward at the world and at myself. Right. Taking on that, whatever ownership. I don't understand this whole, I like, I don't get it. <laughs> I don't get, I think you do. What but is you, you, happening. It sounds like you do get it though. Well, no, I, you, you said just then that it's because of a certain value, a certain standard of value, right, a criterion of values. Yeah. It's only in comparison to that, that you feel this way. Right. Yeah. So you kind of answered your, your own question. You do understand. So it's precisely the <laughs> fact, this is precisely why the transvaluation of all values is yeah. important. I don't understand what Deleuze is advocating. It's stoicism or something like I just don't, I can't really totally vibe with it. I have a lot of issues with this book and just not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do. One of the targets is is a philosophical one yeah. surface, which is against the dialectic, right? Specifically the Hegelian variant. And of course, we could even, before going deeper, look at, and I, I mentioned in the first episode, there's that 10-year gap from Hume to Nietzsche. And we don't he really hear about Hegel in the Hume book. I mean, it kind of makes sense. That would be a, perhaps anachronistic. And Hegel didn't really deal with Hume in the way that Kant did, right? So obviously yeah. Kant and Hume were the focus. In this book, 10 years later, even though Nietzsche doesn't really talk about Hegel all too often, he does have some remarks here and there. And even Deleuze kind of mentions it. It's like, it's not really about how many times Nietzsche says Hegel's name. And that's true. You know, but it, biographically, we can think of what's going on in Deleuze's life where, you know, he's uh, he's preparing for his aggregation, right, for actually getting his, what we might want to call his PhD, and what's going on, what has been going on even before, even the generation before Deleuze, right? You think about Kojev and his whole influence on spreading Hegel and the kind of humanist Hegel, influencing Sartre, Lacan, blah, blah, blah. Sure, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, one of Deleuze's key teachers is, is Ippolit, who is doing a much more kind of structuralist Hegel, one that forgoes some of the downsides of, of a kind of humanist Hegel that was, if you will, a kind of popularized version of him. Yeah. So there's a, there's a much more like rigorous Hegel with, with Ippolit and Deleuze is dealing with this, we could call it an anxiety of influence type thing. Obviously there is this sort of struggle over not just the philosophy that will be dominant during for his generation, which was still kind of Heidegger, Hegel, Husserl, right? The three German, the German trio. Triple H. Yeah, the triple fucking <laughs> H. And then on the other side, Deleuze also sees analytic philosophy gaining in, in weight, which is why W for Wittgenstein and the Abyssidaire <laughs> is like, Wittgenstein's the assassin of philosophy. I really don't know if that's fair. I think he might be just thinking of the dominance of analytic philosophy, kind of like we, one could say that, um, in reflected ways, the German philosophy moving into French, there's always this thing where what's quote unquote exotic or not homegrown has a little bit of higher va- valence, right? Yeah, can say right. Yeah. How continental philosophy is obviously dominated by German. the grass is always greener. French. We could say at a biographical level, there is this struggle uh, with the 
previous generation or even two True. previous generations with Hegel. And so finding Nietzsche becomes like the, uh, what is it? The, uh... even this seems like though it falls back into Hegel, right? <laughs> it's like, I'm only giving now the deeper sense is obviously not just philosophical. It's not just a philosophical qu quibble. I mean, this gets into reaction um, too, right? And whether, you know, man is a reactive animal. There's new grounds of possibility that are set. And then we react against those grounds. Or to put it in a more Deleuzean way, the world throws us a problem and we have we have to react to that. Pro we're forced to react to that problem. And the problem is the problem of, of man. That's what we see in the final chapter. Sure. And I mean, if, I'm if on board we, with that. Because that... If, but you know, ahead. if man is a tightrope between ape and overman, Deleuze is moving very quickly here at the very end of the book when he's pointing to some a bunch of Nietzsche quotes about how Zarathustra himself is not the overman, the overman, right? He's kind of announcing almost like Moses, right? Getting to the uh, uh yeah, yeah, or John the, the, the Baptist or whatever, land. yeah. What do you what are you thinking about John the Baptist? He's not the Messiah, but he yeah, announces okay. the, the coming right. of the Messiah. Something like that. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So Zarathustra is right. He's not, and even he's not, if you will, Dionysus, but he, he kind of affirms, he affirms the, if you will, the dice throw of the overman and not the last man. Right. So because there's a sense in which the last man is merely passively kind of fading away, whereas there's an active this sort of like an act of self-destruction called for for the mm. the quote unquote higher man that that leads into the overman similar to like nietzsche's notion of active forgetting we always think forgetting in this negative inverted image where it's this it's a product of yeah it's like a passivity like failure just, like memories fall out of our they fall out of our head but no it's like we're it even would go to freud like we're actively suppressing memories and recall right it's it's a for nietzsche it's a sign of health right there who cannot forget is nietzsche's main question who is the one who cannot forget it's the one of resentment first of all right, right. because yeah. he's i'm guilty heard... about my behavior in the past or what i did yeah it's like i get in those negative loops or intrusive thoughts about something i did 20 years ago right well, that's I, bad I conscience. Did. That's bad conscience. Oh, okay, got it. Right, right, right. But resentment is is I. Uh, you always hear it like I've always heard growing up. Men for, for, uh, forget, but never forgive. Women forgive, but never forget. Both of the that's just two sides of the same coin of resentment. Because one and all, it's you lack the ability to act out those reactive forces. You lack that, or whether you lack that desire, or you just really are not constituted in such a way right you are a reactive being one could say and you know i think that not you the, right the yeah the editorial you i got you so you know i take it as when nietzsche talks about active forgetting it's a sign of health it is a sign of we talk about it in different terms of letting go but there's a sense in which having done with something finally ruminating it to the point of of eliminating it from the system. You know, I think that that's a part of it. And I think that what Nietzsche is talking about when he talks about the transvaluation of all values is. Um, I mean, that goes to feeling too, right? Like it's that there's something about the, the sense of 
of resentment that like something about the feeling there's something alluring about the feeling well about the reaction then i don't know that's precisely why it is linked to memory right instead of acting out the reactive forces we in our inability to ever forget a slight or um or a failure or 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 something like this we we have to regurgitate it and spit it back into our our mouths and taste it again and feel it we almost it almost like nourishes us i do think that that's part of what oh there you go this essential link between revenge and memory resembles the freudian anal sadistic complex right anal retentive or whatever you want to call it right we just not being able to uh, evacuate our feces we're holding our our bowels right because we want to feel that intensity that pressure there's obviously a way we can we can use memory in a way that's not reactive or resentful we can hold on to failure in a way that motivates us I'm not going to go into a whole fucking self-help spiel <laughs> because we've all heard it. We've all kind of, kind of heard it. Why do we fall Bruce? Right? That's, <laughs> you know, we've all, we've all kind of um, seen that kind of thing and being against the dialectic, isn't merely philosophical for Deleuze. If it were, it, then I don't think the, the polemic against the, uh, against the dialectic would have any teeth or even be that interesting. If we merely remained on a kind of epistemological level, we can see that the critique would be much different and much less interesting. I don't think it's as interesting as the critique we find here. It doesn't even have as much teeth, but there are elements of that in uh, difference of repetition, right? Why the dialectic fails on epistemological. We do see some seeds of epistemological beef in this book too about universality and particularity being not asking the right questions, right? The what is question being taken too seriously rather than the which one. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, and obviously we can talk about Sterner here in a minute. For the most part, you know, when Deleuze is saying, agree with him or not, it's obviously an open question. And there are obviously good Hegelians out there that uh, I don't necessarily think are reactive or pre promoting reactivity like like Stephen Holgate, right? Breath of Fresh Air, good example of just brilliant teacher and seemingly like a burst of, of life. But, you know, for Deleuze, moving, making the negative the, the motor of the, of the system is this, is this culmination of reactive forces. I think Deleuze sees in this not just epistemological concerns, but ethical concerns, whereby one can imagine that from the get-go we are not worthy of what happens to us or let's just say i think there's a way in which dialectic worthy of what happens to us after the fact through some sort of retrospective some sort of future retrospective where we will have been worthy due to the unfolding of you know, the plan or something like that, right? You know, I think for Deleuze, becoming equal to the event and this becoming worthy, I don't think it takes place in the same way. It's not a kind of retrospective rationalization. There may be a retrospective to it, but it's not the same type of affirmation. 
so like taking the silver lining i suppose i mean we could say it that way there's i suppose there's different ways of silver linings playbook <laughs> for zarathustra for nietzsche for deleuze as he says you know it's not only the eternal return and the overman but laughter play and dance i suppose there's a way of laughing badly there's a way of playing badly there's a way of dancing badly there's a way of i think that's kind of what deleuze is saying for example laughing badly with plato and, and hegel for example with the dialectic in general deleuze wants to say that uh you know it's always this movement of irony that is a way of laughing badly i know that gets us outside the scope of this book um so I, I won't go further into that but he opposes you know platonic irony to or socratic irony right to um to like stoic humor and it's interesting that you call this book a stoic book well no i mean not the it's whole book but i think just the the ethical the ethical message or arguments to me sound like a stoicism that's still probably leaving us in um in the in the sense in which we're 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 the ass right where we just have to affirm maybe that's the argument that i don't understand what this is sort of getting at because it sounds like be the beast that lives in the moment don't be caught up in the past or the future live in the now and i just feel like yeah, I don't know if that's the if that's the best ethic we can have. But well, but if you remember, I don't know if we are merely supposed to be beasts of of prey or birds of prey, right? You know, and I also think that one of the things that obviously we didn't talk about it, but right when this comes back in in Anti Oedipus, if you remember when Nietzsche shows up to supplement or even like overturn most when it's about yeah exchange versus debt yeah a significant portion of the prehistory of man went into forging a memory this like nemotechnics right how much cruelty uh yeah the was system involved of cruelty and inscription yeah in order to be able to forge create the man who can promise that stuff is interesting that already has a dynamic of the past and the future right yeah yeah that already sort of orients us you know, looking at the potlatch, it's really it's about it's about debt, right? It's about this anxiety or what have you. It's about anxiety of having or anxiety is involved, right? In the sense of now I have this huge debt to pay off. I have to throw a bigger party, but I don't know. That's weird because it's like an active process too. I maybe I've uh, lost myself in the sauce. No, you're fine. I mean, I'm just trying to think about. Um... You know, when Leotard takes up this notion of nihilism and perspectivism, you know, he talks about there's two ways to be nihilistic. There's one way that is about sort of the restoration of faith, the faith in the in, in unity and uh, whether it be of the nation or of a people, of a race, right? The restoration of finality, sort of a, with a teleological meaning attached to our existence in the world, whether it be to go to heaven or something like this, we can be involved in shoring up values that are present, or we can, as he says, get our hands dirty in their active destruction, right? Which is it just about 
doesn't have to necessarily take the form of Joker just just wanting to send a message and watch the world burn, right? Because that itself also, we could say, we're always sort of left. Whenever, we never get the uh, the objet of Joker's desire. That's kind of why his, his story about how he got the scars changes too, right? We're always sort of missing the causal ground of his his beef, his madness, if you want to call it that, his uh, his desire. And I don't think necessarily that that's what the Overman has to be. Now, the Joker may have elements of the Overman, if you will, because he's getting his hand dirty in in destruction, whether it's destruction of, of current values. All perhaps. you care about is money. Right. So there is an aspect of it, which is why... Nietzsche will look at various historical figures and and put forth the overman for Nietzsche is not Julius Caesar or you could say Bismarck. That would have been a good example for him during the time, right? This kind mm-hmm. of militaristic nationalist hero for the time. For Nietzsche, that's not the overman. And you can see that like in his early days, he probably thought Wagner was had a good yeah, yeah, yeah. overman. But we see that that's there is a sense in which the man or the higher man leading to the overman is about self overcoming. And I think that's obviously one thing that Joker lacks. Whether or not he has a self to overcome could be another, right? But he's not necessarily willing his own downfall for the advent of something greater. Wouldn't Christ fit that sort of role of willing his own death to bring about? the kingdom of God or whatever. If that were to give rise to the overman, I mean, one can see that, and this gets back to that first part, which we talked about a little bit, Christ versus Dionysus, Mm -hmm. where there is still this notion of life is something that needs to be redeemed because it's guilty, because it's inherently guilty. Right, yeah. Inherently sinful because it's inherently... The world is fallen. Corrupted. So, the world is a priori fallen and bad. Life is bad automatically. Life is suffering, etc. On the one hand, there are similarities. There are aspects, again, just as there are aspects of Joker in the in the Overman, there are aspects of Jesus, one could say, of... of Sounds a little Hegelian. Oh. But it's... Uh, the Overman is like the synthesis between... Joker and Jesus. Joker and Jesus. The is not Christ, though, right? I mean, right. no, it's the synthesis of. I don't think so. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm being a bit. I'm being a bit tongue in cheek. Sorry. No, that's fine. Not, not to piss you off or be like. No, not at all. I, I'm just. I, I, I'm being I a little jokey. So. Sorry. On the one hand, there is a sense in which Christ has aspects, and Nietzsche doesn't always talk about Christ as as negative. By the way, and as we'll see next. This weekend, the real uh, enemy for Nietzsche is St. Paul. And we saw some of that, I think, in, in here. I can't remember if, if we saw some of that in this book, but, you know. Yeah, Saint, it's, it's definitely in there. St. Paul that wants to put Christ back on the cross, right, and keep him there. This weekend's discussion, so we don't come. But, you know, there is a sense in which Christ is overturning certain values encrusted society at the time we can think of him in the in the temple with the money lenders how that had become a kind of 
accepted practice. We can think about his Sermon on the Mount. But of course, when Nietzsche looks at something like the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to see this rise of slave morality, of reactive forces taking over. The meek shall inherit the earth, yada, yada, right? The poor in spirit. It's all about reversal of values. Rather than, this is where my Laurel brain comes in, where it's like, if you reverse values, you actually keep the same hierarchical structure, right? It's kind of like, you know, if you're an atheist or a, a Satanist and you just invert the cross, you're right. Yeah. The cross is still the fucking symbol. So you're just inverting a hierarchy. You keep right. the structure intact. I mean, we talked about Derrida a little bit. I don't know if it was last week or the week before, it but you know, week. you know, if we're just inverting binaries, we're not really deconstructing them. Exactly. Even if, yeah. Even if we're just dealing if, with identity, even if part of the movement of deconstruction is about this seesaw, this uh, hinge effect that I was talking about, that's not the end goal. That may be part of the motor to accelerate the, uh, to get some, some, some thrust. But yeah, so if we're just reversing values, if the, and this was part of Plato and Socrates' worry, right, about how the weaker argument can become the stronger. This is why the sophist is not willing to wager on truth, because the sophist is going to teach you how to make the weak argument stronger. Plato was about his reversal, how the stimulacrum can take the place of the real. And I think that Nietzsche, you know, whether it be in the, um, how the true world finally became a fable. It's not interested in just reversing priorities. Again, you stay, you stay with the same structural relation, which is why God is dead. God is not dead. They indicate a kind of value system, right? But in, in a certain sense for Deleuze, and he, he takes this from uh, Nicholas Tacusa, God exists. God does not exist. Has those two propositions have the same sense. I can't wait to get to logic of sense with you. <laughs> that that can kind of have some cachet right now. That might just sound provocative, but there's something similar, right? Where God exists, God does not exist. To a certain extent, the key operative term is God. The key term, the term with the power, is God. It's still determining our syllogism, whether we negate or not. We're still giving power to that concept construct god is dead as nietzsche shows this or as and shows, this is an interesting statement this is a different statement this involves a synthesis which involves a, a complex relation where god is, right, is now yeah. entered into time temporality becoming mortality i know we talked about god is dead a little bit last time but it does come back up in these later chapters like little Anthony Soprano said, it's uh, it's not no God, it's God is dead. I do sort of agree with this idea of Christianity as a as a slave morality, and how that slave morality informs capitalism as well. Like the logic of it is very similar, and that the, but then again, I mean, you know, Deleuze critiques Sterner for this notion of like appropriation and property. So I don't know if it necessarily works. I was going to say that, again, to go back to the capitalist as the one that does not, they don't act per se on their desire. They delay gratification and the proletariat, the proletariat creates and the, and the capitalist appropriates the creation. 
so there's a theft which would maybe lead to the resentment of the capitalist by the right but that goes to that even that notion of the bird of prey and the the lamb or what have you which i think problematizes the my whole logic or something that just doesn't sit very neatly with me we could talk a little bit about sterner before uh maybe closing out i mean i know that you enjoyed the stuff and i do think it's interesting right that not only does he make nietzsche the opponent of of hegel but he also brings in sterner right as a kind of interesting uh associate in this yeah even if sterner can't be followed for 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 other reasons let me read this because this goes yeah, to please, my, please. my comments that i just made the man of Rosantamon is the man of profit and gain. Moreover, Rosantamon could only be imposed on the world the triumph of a principle of gain by making profit not only a desire and a way of thinking, but an economic, social, and theological system, a complete system, a divine mechanism. A failure to recognize profit, this is the theological crime and the only crime against the spirit. It is in this sense that slaves have a morality and that this morality is that of utility. There's this quote from Nietzsche that this reminds me of. Let me see if I can pull it up. So when one has demonstrated that a thing is of the highest utility, one has, however, thereby taken not one step toward explaining its origin. That is to say, one can never employ utility to make it comprehensible that a thing must necessarily exist. That's how Larwell starts off the first essay that he published. And... Mm -hmm. um, he says, that's not Spinoza's axiom, that's Nietzsche's. When we try to explain things, whether it be uh, specifically values by, by their utility, we haven't really gone into explaining their origin. You know, and I think that that's an interesting, perhaps countervalence to something like necessity is the mother of invention, but perhaps not against obviously every technological invention, but perhaps against the invention of values because there's no telling that its utility can give us any sense of its origin. And I do think that for Nietzsche, right? Like arguments based on utility sort of lack the teeth of the clause of necessity. Interesting. How's that? Well, one could always talk about the utility of the state, of the church, of the army, of particular laws for subverting desire for subverting change one could always argue in favor you know for these things and their great utility and i think in that sense then what happens to creation well creation becomes something naughty creation becomes something negative something that one should not participate in. I mean, you and I have talked about this growing up, right? Having a little bit of that Christian upbringing where thinking things outside of the sort of received worldview in which we were brought up, right? Like questioning God's existence, omnipotence, questioning the existence of heaven or hell, sort of thinking outside of the theological toolbox conceptually thinking against those established values are already felt like a sin it was already be to sort of do a disservice to god and to be to be naughty to be bad you can imagine that there's great utility 
and that kind of insularity, promoting that kind of insularity. There's great utility in cutting off avenues for the creation of new values. That shores up the strength and endurance of old values. And I think that that's part of like the way, um, I mean, since we've been talking about capitalism, that's one of the ways that capitalism, obviously not the only way, but that's one of the ways that, that capitalism as a value system amongst other value systems, because it's not unique in this respect, at least, is able to perpetuate itself. We can imagine, you know, if, if somebody says that they don't put their, their cash into a savings account, but they put it under their bed we can imagine them as being a little bit crazy. I'm thinking like, uh, you can think back to like 12 Monkeys, one of the little speeches that Brad Pitt's character, I forget his name. Jeffrey Goins. Yeah, there you go. One of the little speeches he goes into about, you know, it's being a good consumer that is almost like the virtue signaling that we're saying in a capitalist society. One can imagine that uh, arguments by utility for they're reactive you said arguments by futility or what you arguments, you, you dropped out for a second arguments based on utility are uh for nietzsche they're they're lower they're um they're not worthy of sort of being dignified or they're not they're not worried worthy of higher values obviously that doesn't mean things certain things aren't useful it's not quite what he's talking about right it's we can imagine like if we are going to go sort of line by line and look at sort of the values we invest in society, you know, right. For example, we can look, we can just, and this is maybe a bad example. We can just look at like the budget of the U S government, $867 billion a year on the military. We see what kind of value that reflects. And we see the presupposed idea of the utility of that value judgment even though we know that a large majority of that is sort of squandered a large majority of that is like almost like an ancient wasting ritual of um to build prestige how much of that goes into making whether it be you know useless tanks or or how many of it of it just gets wasted in in the different defense contracts, blah, blah, blah. Sure. I'm sure we get stuff for it, but you know, we can imagine that so much of this is almost this, almost like a prehistorical prestige ritual. Anti-production. There's obviously a sense in which, and we can kind of start to close out here. We see that Nietzsche's question about or problem about man solution about overman is sort of closely related to this problem of nihilism of the history of humanity right as this reactive slide down down a hill of values if you will this sort of chain of reactive events and for nietzsche it's man overcoming man's self-overcoming if you will is similar to nihilism's dark night wherein it defeats itself those two are, are are closely related and so i think that that's one of the interesting things that that sort of deliz's book ends with is this is sort of making these two making the notion of becoming active the notion of the overman 
the notion of affirmation, all, all of that kind of culminate in nihilism's self-defeat. I like the quote he has on Stirner and his nihilism. Yeah, go ahead and read it if you got it. He's incapable of, po- he being Stirner, is inca- incapable of posing this question in anything but the human perspective under any conditions but those of nihilism. He cannot let this question develop for itself or pose it in another element which would give it an affirmative response. He lacks a method, a typological method, which would correspond to the question, which is, I'm assuming, would be which one, like. I don't think that's it, because doesn't he grant Sterner? Here he says it is not enough for him to pose the question, which one? Dialectic loves and controls history, but it has a history itself, which it suffers from and which it does not control. The meaning of history and the dialectic together is not the realization of reason, freedom, or man as a species, but nihilism. Nothing but nihilism. Stirner is the dialectician who reveals nihilism as the truth of the dialectic. It is enough for him to pose the question, which one? The unique ego turns everything but itself into nothingness, and this nothingness is precisely its own nothingness. Yeah, so Stirner does pose the question, which one? But whereas Stirner's answer is the self-creating nothingness of, of the ego, Nietzsche's response to nihilism is overman i think that they have in a certain sense they definitely have similar targets at least for Deleuze, right yeah for sure yeah this question about method is interesting yeah because i I think that that's that's where Deleuze might say well sterner was still caught up in the the systematic movement of the dialectic itself he shows the dialectic to kind of self-combust at a certain point he pushes the dialectic that far that's where Deleuze gives him credit yeah Um, and which i totally agree i mean i often say that sterner was hegel's best student in the sense not that he's a greater philosopher than marx but in the sense that he takes hegel's thought to its logical extension its logical conclusion and he's faithful in a way that i think Deleuze says that marx tries to paper over or like uh, tries to sort of he takes a great pains or steps to try to like paper over this sort of gap let's see here's another quote the interest of sterner's book which is uh what's been recently retranslated the unique and its property is that right is that the correct yes the ego and its own was the older translation that he's So the interest of Stirner's book is threefold, a profound analysis of the insufficiency of the reappropriations of his predecessors, the discovery of the essential relation between the dialectic and the theory of the ego, the ego alone being the reappropriating instance, a profound vision of what the outcome of the dialectic was with the ego in the ego. History in general and Hegelianism in particular found their outcome, but also their most complete dissolution in a triumphant nihilism. And then that leads into your quote, dialectic loves and controls history. So that was just backing up a few lines. Does this kind of get to that notion? Well, this notion of where you're not really, well, doing anything if you're merely reversing the hierarchy. And I'll read this to bring it home. The speculative motor of the dialectic is contradiction and its resolution, but the practical motor is alienation and the suppression of alienation, alienation and reappropriation. Here the dialectic reveals its true nature, an art of quibbling beyond others, an art of disputing properties and changing proprietors, an art of resentment. So I think that what I really was pointing to is that line, an art of uh, like the changing proprietors being just the mere reversal of your example of Satanism, 
etc or what mm-hmm. have you yeah i mean here i'm not exactly sure you might know better than me about this language but if is changing proprietors here like saying when sterner is saying like i'm not species being i am ego it goes to the whole critique of religion even mm-hmm. going back to hegel where or like uh feuerbach where you know it's we're just we're no longer god we're just sort of switching the places between god and the state or god and humanity or what have you or humanism right so like here it's saying what's the reappropriating instance so is what hegel's objective spirit or something and cerner's like no it's it's ego right well here you see bauer's self-consciousness for your species being man of species i am nothing of all that right so relative reappropriations are still absolute alienations which is a pretty nice little line. Yeah, it's it is. dense. It's, it's a dense, yeah, yeah, juicy yeah. nugget. It's good. But, but the uh, these relative reappropriations, I guess, as we say, Hegel's objective spirit, Bauer's self-consciousness, Feuerbach species being, these are all absolute alienations from sort of the self-founding nothingness of the ego. Yeah, that makes sense. But the dialectic cannot be halted until I finally become a proprietor. So yeah, I suppose that's the question is... Because it's hard to translate necessarily. It's like almost saying if the proprietor proper is to be over man, then I should not man. I say I, but man should not necessarily take on the role or the goal of being proprietors of their own values, which means of established values, right? If you're really going to follow this logic in Nietzschean philosophy to its conclusion, it's the fact that transvaluation of all values in the affirmation of the uh, being of becoming only the act of forces return, blah, blah, blah. All of that entails the downfall, the going under of man, of man's values, and not sort of pulling ourselves up in a corner in order to reinforce ourselves whether it be our species being or our knowledge or our self-consciousness etc the irony perhaps or the paradox if you will is that it does seem like kind of like with the accumulation of productive forces it does seem like there needs to be there has to be a threshold of the development of self-consciousness knowledge species being in order to get to the point where even the problem of man and overman can be posed that makes sense so the only way out is through or some other trite thing <laughs> yeah right which is sometimes what we see saying about capitalism i don't know if they ever definitively decided on one you know method or method or uh, practice but one of the things that guattari is talking about is like yeah acceleration kind of like only way out is through you got to develop the productive forces to the point where it's just like it topples ass over tea kettle right more shit, more gizmos, more gadgets. That's like what Guattari is saying. Like just, just almost like choke it with this hyper production to the point where it, it it falls over. That's not the only thing that they they call for, but there is a sense in which, at that point, you could say they're almost like throwing things at the wall and seeing what will stick. But there's a logic to it, right? There's a logic to it that's similar to what I was bringing up, where it does seem like there needs to be a self development of of quote-unquote man's forces in order to confront the problem of 
self-overcoming. Here's this line that I was mentioning with regard to Marx to switch gears a little bit. Stirner is too much of a dialectician to think in any other terms but those of property, alienation, and appropriation, but too exacting to not see where this thought leads to the ego, which is nothing, to nihilism. This is one of the most important senses of Marx's problem in the German ideology. For Marx, it is a matter of stopping this fatal sliding. He accepts Stirner's discovery that the dialectic is the theory of the ego. On one point, supports Stirner. For your box, human species is still an alienation, but Stirner's ego is in turn an abstraction, a projection, a bourgeois egoism. <laughs> Marx elaborates his famous doctrine of the conditioned ego, the species, and the individual. Species being in the particular, social order and egoism are reconciled in the ego conditioned by social and historical relations. Is this sufficient? What is the species and which one is the individual? Has the dialectic found its point of equilibrium and rest or merely a final avatar, the socialist avatar but before the nihilist conclusion? It is difficult, in fact, to stop the dialectic and history on the common slope down which they drag each other. Does Marx do anything else but mark the last stage before the end, the proletarian stage? It's kind of a, an interesting, strange question and... <laughs> We should look at that footnote before we conclude. Well, it seems to be a, a footnote to Merleau-Ponty and the adventures of the dialectic. But I was not expecting that. <laughs> right, yeah. So I'm not going to bother talking about that. that. That gets us on a tangent. This little quote on Overman I thought was interesting. I thought it... I'll just read these. There's just two quotes in, in combination. The Overman has nothing in common with the species being of the dialectician's with man as species or with the ego, neither ego nor man is unique. The dialectical man is the most wretched because he is no longer anything but a man, having annihilated everything which was not himself. He is also the best man because he has suppressed alienation, replaced God, and recuperated his properties. We should not think of Nietzsche's overman as simply a raising of the stakes. He differs in nature from man, from the ego, the overman is defined by a new way of feeling. He is a different subject from man, something other than the human type. A new way of thinking, predicates other than divine ones, for the divine is still a way of preserving man and of preserving the essential characteristic of God. God is attribute, a new way of evaluating, not a change of values, not an abstract transposition, nor a dialectical reversal, but a change and a reversal in the element from which the values of values derives a transvaluation. And then this is a separate quote, but this is one I thought was like regarding the overman had some valence with Stirner. Destruction as the act of destruction of all known values is the trail of the creator. Look at the good and the just. What do they hate most? The one who breaks their tables of values, the destroyer, the criminal, but it is he, the creator. I mean, you have to look at Stirner's notions of he has a similar idea of like, but he calls it the fixed ideas, the fixed ideas of morality, the sort of essences, the eternal essences that we abstract from ourselves and alienate from our ourselves, from our own, our own sort of motor of creation of the world. The idea of the creative nothing, you know, Stirner has a ton of discusses criminals a shitload in unique in its property 
He has some interesting quotes that go to the this conversation too, but I don't know if I want to keep you much longer. That's fine. You can read this just to finish it out. But you cannot talk egoistically to him because you are not as great a criminal. You commit no crimes at all. You do not know that a self-owning eye cannot desist from being a criminal, that crime is his life. And yet you should know it since you believe that we are altogether sinners, but you think to finagle your way around sin. You don't understand because you're devil fearing that guilt is the value of a human being. Oh, if you were guilty, but you are righteous, will make everything nicely right for your Lord. (laughs) (laughs) God, good stuff. Yeah, that's pretty silly. (laughs) It is interesting to dialogue Nietzsche and Stirner. Surprisingly, I haven't really read a whole lot that like puts them even in like dialogue with one another. Even though they yeah, share so I, much, I think, in, a, in certain ways. And I wonder about how much Sterner was even being talked about in, um, you know, in French at the time when, you know, the English property was translated into French, where Deleuze would have come across it. Yeah, I know. You know, I mean, like the one place obviously is German ideology, right? That's that's true. Yeah. Which Deleuze mentions in the passage that you quoted, right? Yeah. So that obviously readers of Marx would have been um well it's funny because like they familiar I mean, with Stirner. It's obvious that Stirner really triggered Marx so much that he wrote that fucking I mean, how big is the German ideology is like what? It's a massive like five hundred pages or something, isn't it? No, no, uh no, it's like three hundred? It's a it's, sizable uh, book. I think it's closer to three hundred, but uh I know it wasn't you know, it wasn't even published until yeah, after Marx's fairly recently. Death. Yeah. And it's not all about Max True. Stirner, but there's a big chunk of it. There's a pretty big chunk that is about uh, Stirner. Okay, 240 pages, so maybe not as big as I thought, but I don't know if I'm as much of a Stirnerite as I perhaps was, but I don't know. I think he contributes something interesting to this discussion or like this critique of Hegel or working through Hegel that Deleuze is kind of also sort of interested in. Deleuze even seems to think, he outright states in this text that he's pretty sure that Nietzsche had read Stirner or was aware of his work. Though, like, to my knowledge, that's never been fully, like, we don't know, you know. There's not really, like, a a biography of him, right? Of Stirner? Yeah. Yeah, there is a biography. Oh, okay. But even that, I don't know, I don't think it's going to bring up Nietzsche because what, uh, Stirner died somewhere probably before 1850, if I'm not mistaken. Because I think the Unique in its property came out in 1845. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Obviously, they wouldn't have known each other, but... uh... Yeah, Stirner died in 1856. Nietzsche was born in 1844. Do you want to wrap up there? Yeah, yeah. I just... There's a lot of stuff that I that we'll get into uh, this weekend with um, Nomad Thought and um, Nietzsche and St. Paul, Lawrence and John of Patmos. So I was trying to hold back Sounds interesting that I yeah. had so that we don't just yeah. keep going over the same stuff. But we can kind of finish our little Deleuze Nietzsche fray this weekend, if that sounds good to you, buddy. Yeah, absolutely. That'll wrap up this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. See y'all next week. 